If you have your Bibles with you, you're going to want to open up in Luke chapter 7. We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, and as many of you know, we're going through his whole life in chronological order, in order that the events happened. We're using all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to get the complete picture because we want to know everything there is to know about Jesus for ourselves. And while that's an impossible task, we want to do our very best to know him firsthand through his word and not just through secondhand words from other people, but directly from his word, the way that he wanted us to know him. And last week we finished studying through the Sermon on the Mount after six weeks on one of Jesus's messages, because they're that good. It's the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus himself. You can listen online if you missed any of those. But this week, Jesus is going to remind us of the power of faith in the life of the believer. You know, the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the heart of what we believe, and you can't believe in Jesus without it. It's the key to everything. Faith is the first hurdle you must cross in your relationship with Christ. But have you noticed it's also the second, the third, and the fourth, and the fifth? It's all of them. Faith is the challenge that we are faced with again and again and again. The question that keeps coming up in the life of the believer is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Until we arrive in the presence of Jesus where faith is no longer needed because Jesus is right there. What a moment that's going to be. Let's dig right into the text. We're going to begin in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. It says this. Now when he, Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Matthew's gospel will tell us that the servant was paralyzed and in great pain. Verse 3. So when he, the centurion, heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Let's unpack a few things here. This centurion knew that the only hope for his servant was Jesus getting involved. It was the only hope. And so he took the initiative to do what was necessary in order to get Jesus involved. Write this down. It's your first fill-in. We must take the initiative to involve Jesus in our lives. We must take the initiative to involve Jesus in our lives. Time and time again, you and I are going to face obstacles and difficulties in life where our only hope is to get Jesus involved. And what we can't do in that situation is nothing. Nothing is the one thing we can't do. We can't do nothing and then lament the fact that God has not gotten himself involved in our situation. We can't simply sit there feeling down, doing nothing, and complain that God hasn't done anything. The starting point of our part in this is the Word of God. The questions are, are we doing what His Word says we should be doing? If you're facing a relational challenge, are you following the counsel of the Word of God in your relationships? If you're facing a financial challenge, are you following the financial instructions of the Word of God? If it comes to marriage, if it comes to parenting, that's the starting point of involving God in our lives, allowing him to be the authority that drives our behavior. Do we know what his word says? Are we standing on what his word says? Are we speaking it out in faith? Are we praying on it? We have to invite Jesus's involvement in our situation. And that's exactly what the centurion does. 
Verse 4, it goes on and says, And when they came to Jesus, the Jewish elders now, on behalf of the centurion, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So we meet this Gentile, this non-Jewish Roman centurion who's stationed in Capernaum. As a centurion, he would have been in charge of probably around 100 soldiers. And Capernaum probably would have been the district that he was assigned to. It would have been his job to use those soldiers to make sure that the local Jewish population didn't rise up in rebellion against Rome. It was his assigned area. And we get the sense that there's something special about the centurion because they didn't have a reputation for being very caring towards other people, especially not their servants. But he has a deep care and concern about the health situation of one of his servants. We also learn that he has a reputation for being loving toward the Jewish people, which would have been very unusual. Even the hyper-judgmental Jewish leaders in the area consider him worthy of being helped by Jesus. He's somehow responsible for the building of the synagogue in Capernaum. We don't know if he used his own money or if he simply cut through the bureaucratic red tape to get it done, but they consider him the man who built their synagogue. All signs point to him believing that the God of the Jews is the true God. Everything about the way he lived, the way he acted shows that he couldn't put his finger on it, but he recognized there was something true about the God that these Jews served. He honors the Jews so much that he doesn't even feel appropriate approaching Jesus directly. So he goes through intermediaries, the local Jewish elders. Verse 6, it says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, underline that word, Lord, 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 do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Did you catch that? The the judgmental local religious leaders felt that they were qualified to judge who was and was not worthy. And they told Jesus, he's worthy. But the centurion says, I'm not worthy. They said he's worthy because he's done all of this stuff. He has earned his way to the status of worthy. It's the oldest idea in the book that doing lots of stuff is what makes you worthy of Jesus. But the centurion says, I'm I'm not worthy. Because you see, at that time, Jews believed that eating with a Gentile, having them under your roof, was like eating with a pig or a dog. It's an incredibly offensive idea, but this centurion is so convinced of the truth of their God that he doesn't get offended. He just rolls with it and says, I I know I would be asking you to defile yourself by coming into my house. So I'm I'm not going to ask you to do that because I respect you too much. I honor you too much. So you just right where you are, don't even come into my house yet. You don't you don't need to do that. And how does he address Jesus? I had you underline it. He addresses him as Lord. And we know the word Lord means master. So this centurion, and he gets it. He just gets it. Write this down. Those who are open to the truth will be acutely aware of their own sin and will recognize Jesus as Lord. Those who are open to the truth will become acutely aware of their own sin and will recognize Jesus as Lord. The Jewish elders described him as worthy. He described himself as unworthy. 
Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more clearly you see the truth, the more clearly you see yourself, and the more you become aware of who you really are. Other people might tell you you're wonderful, but you know you, and I know me. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more aware I become of what I really am without him. And knowing the truth about yourself is what keeps you in awe and appreciation of the love and grace that Jesus has shown you. You never run out of gratitude to Jesus when you're seeing yourself accurately. It's only when you start drifting from Jesus that your vision begins to cloud up and you begin to look in the mirror and say, yeah, pretty awesome, man. And you come to church and there's no passion. And in your daily Monday through Friday devotional life, there's, there's no passion, there's no urgency because I'm, I'm doing pretty great. I'm pretty great. The further you get from Jesus... You know, the better you look because your vision becomes obscured. It becomes cloudy. The closer you get to Jesus, the more clearly you see yourself. And the appropriate response is, wow, I cannot believe that you love me. That is amazing. It's amazing. Conversely, the opposite of that, write this down. Those who are not open to the truth will be blind to their own sin and will not recognize Jesus as Lord because they don't need him. They don't need a Lord. They don't need a Savior. They're blind to their own sin. In a tragic irony, the Jewish elders who felt they were already holy and righteous were in fact nowhere near as holy and righteous as the Gentile Roman centurion. Pride and arrogance make it impossible to see and hear the truth. You'll believe that you don't need the Lord because you're already good enough. And it is almost impossible to save someone who doesn't believe they need saving. The centurion's message to Jesus keeps going in verse seven. He says, therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. That's where we find out he contacted Jesus through intermediaries because he didn't even feel worthy of approaching Jesus directly. And then he says this, but say the word. You might want to underline, say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, you don't even need to come to my house. Just stop where you are. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's all I need you to do. It's astounding. What faith. Notice this. This is on your outlines too. The centurion elevates the power of Jesus' word even above his physical presence. He elevates the power of Jesus' word even above his physical presence. And we're going to see that Jesus commends him for his faith. Where the word of Jesus is, there's power. Where the word of Jesus is, there's power. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that God is more powerfully present when a certain preacher or a certain teacher or a certain religious figure is present. Jesus himself will commend the centurion for not needing him to be physically present because the centurion has such faith in the power of the word of Jesus. When we gather together to meet as the church, you should be confident, you should be excited that God's presence is going to be here because his word is going to be front and center. His word is going to be front and center. We're going to hear from Jesus today. That's a guarantee. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right. The centurion, he doesn't have a blind faith. There's a reason. There is a logic behind his faith, and he's going to tell us what it is. Verse 8, he says, For I also am a man placed, and then you might want to underline, under authority, 
having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion doesn't have blind faith. His faith is based on an intimate understanding of how authority works. He has an intimate understanding of how authority works. He doesn't have a complicated theology. He just understands that everything, everything is under the authority of Jesus. Life and death, sickness, everything is under the authority of Jesus. And that's profound. He doesn't have a blind faith. He just understands the principle of authority. This is logical to him. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes that the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. Before the Apostle Paul even had a chance to write that, the centurion said, I believe that. I believe it. It's all about authority. Church, we need to understand that the Bible is an entire book full of words that Jesus has spoken. We don't just have a word. We have an entire book of words that Jesus has spoken to us. Most of the time, we don't need to say, God, say the word. We simply need to believe what the word already says. He's already spoken and he has the authority to back up every word that he's spoken and every promise that he's made. You need to say amen to that. Amen. Amen. Psalm 33, it says this. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 119.89. This is one worth memorizing. says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your word is settled in heaven. God wants you and I to know that his word is absolutely true. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life on it. Do you remember just last week where Jesus was talking right towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount? And he said, the person who hears his words and obeys them is like a wise man who builds his life, his house upon the rock. The rains came, the storms came, and the house stood firm. How do you know his word is true? It will never be proven false. It will never be proven false. It will pass every scientific test. It will pass every historical test. And every day, your personal experience and my personal experience in life will confirm that what is written in the word of God is true. It will pass every test, every time. It's settled in heaven. When you or I find ourselves in a situation where all we have to go on, all we have to hold on to is the word of God. And if you're not in a situation like that right now, there's one coming, I promise. Guess what? In those situations, when all we have is the word of God, it's enough. It's enough. Later on in Psalm 33, it says, Behold, the eye of the Lord, as we read earlier, is on those who fear him 
on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. If you look at verse 8 back in Luke 7, I want you to notice that I had you underline the words under authority. Where the centurion says to Jesus, I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. This centurion understands authority not because he has it over other people. He understands authority because he himself is under the authority of someone else. And that person that he is under is the person who gives him the authority over the men that he has. This is a principle of the kingdom of God. You want to write this down. You cannot operate in authority unless you are under authority. You cannot operate in authority unless you are under authority. Jesus Christ himself, where did his authority come from? You can read the other references on your outline at home later today. I'll read you one. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It was given to Jesus. The authority that Jesus had was given to him by the Father because Jesus was under the Father's authority. He submitted himself to the authority of the Father. Where does our authority come from? Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power, said Jesus, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Our authority comes from Jesus. We receive it from Jesus because we are under his authority in the way he has set up the church and the kingdom. If you've ever wondered why there's no spiritual authority in your life, you should stop and ask the question, am I living my life under the authority of the only one who can give me authority? If there's no spiritual authority in your life, Jesus is the only place you can get it from, and the only way you can get it is to be under his authority. There's no exception to that rule. The word of God will have no power in your life if you are not under the authority of the word of God. You can't just live under your own authority and then claim a verse when you need one and expect it to work out. The power comes from being under the authority of the word of God. You know, in the Bible, there's a story we've shared before, the sons of Siva, men who tried to cast out demons using the power of Jesus But the only problem is they weren't living under the authority of Jesus. So they tried to just use his name without actually functioning under his authority. How did it go? Well, they left the house screaming bloody and naked when they tried to cast out a demon. And as we've pointed out before, as a man, when you leave a fight with no pants, you lost. You lost. That's how you know. If you're not under anyone's authority, then nobody is giving authority to you. If you're not under anyone's authority, nobody is giving authority to you. Write this down. But when God's word is the authority over your life, God's word will also be the authority in your life. When God's word is over your life and you submit to it, man, it will be the authority in your life. It will be power in your life. And I love Jesus' reaction to the message that was sent by the centurion. When Jesus heard these things, when he heard the centurion say, just say the word, it says he marveled at him. Underline marveled. He marveled at him and turned around. He's with his disciples and a bunch of people following. He turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, 
I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. When he says, I haven't found such great faith, he means anywhere. I haven't found faith like this anywhere. Nowhere in Israel. This is unbelievable. The disciples didn't even have this kind of faith yet. And that word marvel means astonished. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he was astonished. He was taken aback. He he was almost speechless by the incredible faith of the centurion. Just as a side note, I love this because it's a little insight into Jesus becoming God in the flesh. And even though we don't quite understand how that all works, he had given up enough of his divine nature that he was able to be surprised and astonished. And so he's walked around teaching all these people, getting a lukewarm reception from a lot of them. A lot of them are saying, yeah, you know, he's a great prophet, good guy. And then this Roman centurion that Jesus hasn't even met. They haven't even met face to face. He gets a message from him that says, just say the word. And Jesus is just shocked because in his human form, it's the last place he would have expected to find faith like that. And he marvels at the faith of the centurion. There's only two places in Scripture where it says that Jesus marveled. This is the first one, the incredible faith of the centurion. But later on in his ministry, Jesus will make one final visit to his hometown, Nazareth, and he'll marvel there as well. This is what it says in Mark 6, verse 5. It says of his visit to Nazareth, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus is either marveling at our faith or marveling at our lack of faith. He's either marveling that we take his word for what it is, face value and believe it, or he's looking at us and he's marveling because he's thinking, really? After everything you've seen, after everything I've shown you, after everything I've done, you still can't find the faith to just believe that what I say is true. Really? He's either marveling at our faith or marveling that we refuse to believe no matter what he does for us. Let's make sure he's marveling at our faith. In Matthew's gospel, we get a few extra things in the story at this point. It's Matthew 8, verse 11. Just a few extra things. Jesus continues speaking and says, And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we say that there's going to be people from places you don't expect that are going to come and be a part of the kingdom of God. They're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all these classic Jewish heroes of the faith, yet there's going to be Gentiles sitting down with them in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaks to the Jewish expectations of the Messiah because the Jews were expecting a Jewish Messiah who would arrive to elevate the Jewish people to the highest place of power and prominence on the earth, and the Jews would be blessed and everybody else would finally get what they deserve. And here's Jesus trying to help them see that all the way back with Abraham, the Lord said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The agenda has always been reconciling everyone to God through Jesus, through the Messiah, taking the gospel to all nations and bringing them into the family of God. And after seeing the amazing faith of the centurion, Jesus is moved to speak to their exclusive Jewish mindset because he's thinking, do you see what's happening here, guys? Do you see what's happening? This Gentile who you think is only fit for the fires of hell, he has more faith than any of you. 
And Jesus continues, he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's heavy stuff because Jesus is saying, listen, you think you're a son of the kingdom? So in other words, you think that just because you're Jewish, you're set, you're gonna be saved. It's what gets you into heaven. He's saying most of you guys are gonna spend eternity in hell because you lack the one thing that saves you. Faith in me, belief in me. And as a side note, please notice that Jesus is plainly describing a literal place of torment that we would call hell, where there's darkness, weeping, and pain. It's just one of many places where Jesus makes it clear that hell is a real place. It's a real place. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same day hour that same hour you know i love that verse in matthew's gospel it says as you have believed so let it be done for you it's powerful because jesus links the faith of the centurion to the miracle that he received he links those two things faith and receiving a miracle and i want to pause for a second and and talk about faith because there's so much room for things to get weird as soon as you get to this area. Some people read this and take it all the way to what's sort of called the word faith movement, where faith will get you anything that you want. You just have to have enough faith. You just have to really, really, really want it. But it's not that simple in the Bible. And just briefly, without doing a whole message on it, I just want to recap what we know from the Word of God. We know that God wants us to have faith. The Word says without faith it's impossible to please God. We know that he wants us to have faith in his goodness, in his power, and faith in his love for us. God wants us to have faith. When we ask for something, he wants us to ask with faith. We know that. We know from Jesus' visit to his hometown in Nazareth that a lack of faith, even though we might not quite understand how, can block the miracle-working power of God. He says, man, I can't work where there's a complete lack of faith. Are there exceptions? Yeah, but Jesus made a point in his word of pointing that out. Finally, what we know is that having faith is not a guarantee that we will receive what we ask for. He wants us to have it. He desires that we would have faith in him, but it's not a guarantee that we're going to get exactly what we want. Sometimes God is doing something better, and sometimes God is doing something bigger. Write this down. When we have faith and our prayers aren't answered, We must have faith that God is doing something better or doing something bigger. I could tell you story after story. You probably have them in your own life when you thought God didn't answer your prayer and didn't come through, and then later on you realize, I'm so glad he didn't answer it exactly the way I prayed because he was doing something better. Sometimes God is doing something bigger. He's doing something bigger. Sometimes he's using the suffering of a person to accomplish something great in the kingdom. He's using the passing of a person to accomplish something great in the kingdom. When you read the story of Job, what always hits me is that we know what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. Job doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's a righteous guy. Stands on the word of God. Has faith. And his prayer doesn't get answered. Not because God's doing something better, but because God is doing something bigger. And sometimes... We just experience the effects of a fallen world. I wish that every time we felt the fallenness of this planet, every time we felt death touch us, I wish that God would step in every time. But he doesn't because this isn't heaven yet. 
This isn't heaven yet. Sometimes he's doing something better. Sometimes he's doing something bigger. We need to have faith when we ask, and when we don't get what we want, we need to have faith in the character of God, that our heavenly Father is good. He's good. God wants us to be people of faith. And I want to point out one more thing about the word faith thing. You know, in that stream of theology, this is what they like to say. They like to latch onto the fact that, you know, it's important to note that Jesus said, be healed. And they'll latch onto that. So we need to say, be healed. What they miss is that it's not important that Jesus said, be healed. It's important that Jesus said, be healed. Are you catching the difference? The importance is in the one who spoke the words. The power is not in speaking words. The power is in the one who spoke the words. That's where the power comes from. The centurion didn't name it and claim it. He didn't say, Jesus, give me the recipe. Just write down on a piece of paper what I need to say to get this healing. He recognized that Jesus was the one who had the authority. And so he asked Jesus to say the word. We speak out the promises of God. We confess them. We say them out loud. Not because there's power in our speech, but because there's power in God's word. Because Jesus spoke them first. That's where the power comes from. We fill our minds with God's word. We meditate on the promises of God. Not because our minds are powerful, but because God's word is powerful. And we want to bring it into our situations. Back in Luke's gospel in verse 10. It says this, and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been made sick. Notice that it wasn't the person with the flawless theology who received the miracle. It wasn't the person who really grasped the the root meanings and the original language translation of, of everything in scriptures. It wasn't a scribe or a religious expert who got the miracle. It was the man who simply believed that Jesus had authority over everything. Just believed. He has authority over everything. A man who believed that when Jesus spoke, if need be, the universe itself would bend in submission to his authority to make the words that he had spoken come to pass. He believed it was just that simple. We don't study God's words so that we can acquire more information. We don't study God's word so that we can become smarter, know more stuff, and regurgitate more facts. Our goal is to become greater and greater men and women of faith. That's the goal. In fact, Jesus models for us in Scripture that what we're trying to do is we're trying to become more and more like children who when their dad says, this is what we're going to do, just say, dad said it, it must be true. Dad says we're going to fly later today. Okay, I guess we're going to fly. Dad said it. I believe it. Jesus says that's where you're trying to get to with faith. You're not trying to get to this point where you philosophize and intellectualize everything. You're trying to get all the way to the place where you actually manage to ascend to the place of a child. That's where you're trying to get to, where it's simple faith. God spoke. The Father said it. I believe it. Faith is what pleases God, and his word tells us that faith is produced. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. That's why we're passionate about studying the word of God, filling ourselves with his word, because that's where faith comes from. You don't even know what to stand on if you don't know what his word says. Our goal is greater faith, greater faith. It says this in John 1. 
It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word is not a book. The word is not a stream of theology. It's a person. The word is Jesus. John's gospel opens by explaining to us that the word is Jesus Christ. He is the word. It's not just a book of things he said. It is a representation of what he is. The word of God says he honors his word even above his name. When you get into it, when you work with it, when you read it, you are interacting with Jesus, not a middleman between you and Jesus. It's Jesus, just like we would look at our arm and say, that's part of me. The word of God is part of who Jesus is. In Hebrews, Paul wrote, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Everything I want to know about life, everything I need to know about life is found in Jesus. He is God's final word on all things. He's the final word. It's not complicated. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus teach? How did Jesus respond to that situation? How did Jesus relate to other people? After Jesus rose from the dead, he walked the earth in his resurrected body for 40 days. And one of the things he did was get into a conversation with two of his disciples on the road to a city called Emmaus. And Luke's gospel tells us that what Jesus did in that conversation is he opened up the scriptures and explained one thing to them, just one thing that all of the scriptures spoke of him, that all of it was about him. Everything that God has to say to us is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, when we read his word, we are looking for Jesus in every verse, on every page, in every book, in every chapter. It's Jesus. It all points to him. The Old Testament points ahead to him. The epistles of Paul look back at him, and Revelation watches for him. It's all about him. Hermeneutics, this is your word for the day. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. Here's what you need to know about hermeneutics, okay? It's hymenutics. It's all about Jesus. It's like give the Sunday school answer. Whatever question your teacher asks, if you answer Jesus, you won't be wrong. Okay? It's hymenutics. We all need to look for Jesus on every page because it all points to him. He wrote it so he knows. Whatever your need is, whatever your question is, the answer is Jesus. God's final word on everything. In conclusion today, I just want to ask a few questions. Is your life under the authority of Jesus or under your own authority? Is your life under the authority of God's word or under your own authority? I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you what the evidence in your life points to. The way you use your time, the way you use your talent, the way you view your career, your relationships, your spouse, your kids, your money. If you look at the evidence in your life, are you under the authority of God's word? Does he call the shots? Are you under the authority of Jesus or under your own authority? If you're under your own authority, 
you are limited to your own power working in your life. If you're under the authority of Jesus Christ, you have his power available to you. If you're under the authority of his word, you have the promises of his word and the power of his word flowing through your life. And if you don't have that, you want it. Trust me, you want it. And if it's God and his word and you're living that way and you can say, yes, my life is under his authority, that's awesome. Stay that way. And you spend this coming time just thanking God that his power and his authority is in your life. Just saying, God, thank you so much. I'm, I'm not on my own. Your power is in my life. Your spirit is in my life. Everything you say in your word, that your eye is upon me to sustain me. Thank you, God, for that. But if you're not living that way, repent and change today. I'm not asking you to break down and cry. I'm saying change if that's you. You know what those things are in your life that show that you're calling the shots instead of God. Change them today. Do whatever you need to do today to make actual real change so that you can be under authority and have authority through Jesus, through his word. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that our authority comes from you. Not from just another person, but from the living almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. Father, help us to choose wisely and live under your authority, God. Thank you for the promises of your word, the power of your word. That, God, we can stand on what your word says. Not because there's magic at work when we repeat a special set of words, but because we are standing on the words that you have spoken. And there is power in your word, God. We believe that today, Jesus. We believe that your eyes are upon us, that you are with us, God. I pray that you would fill us with faith. Not so that we can get what we want, but so that we can honor you rightly, God. Fill us with faith to believe that your word is enough. And if you've spoken it, it's enough. God, I pray for every person in this room who feels that they've had faith and their prayer hasn't been answered. Father, I pray you would fill them with faith that you're doing something better or you're doing something bigger. where there is not understanding available. Would you pour out your peace, Lord God? May it be enough to know that you are good. You're good. And we rest in that. Father, would you replace all of our questions, all of our doubts, with the simple faith that a child has in a good father. Would you make it simple all over again that you said it and so we believe it. We believe it. We love you, Lord God. We love you, Jesus.